Genesis chapter 2. We finished it 2 verse 17, so tonight will be 2.18. Genesis 2 verse 18. And we'll probably add a lot of notes um, to the book. Um, Because those are my... The book is basically my notes. Um, And so in my mind, I, I know how certain other things are connecting, but I'll have to add those verses to it, and I'll add those tonight so you see what I mean. Uh, Genesis 2, verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make an help meet for him. Okay, so God made a help meet for Adam. That'd be Eve. Um, Genesis uh, 2, 18 is where he's um, decided. Adam has looked around, said, Hey, nothing here is going to help me. He's in control of everything. I have all the responsibility Adam does. But as Adam, there was no one there to share the burden with. And so that's what the helpmate is for. The helpmate will find does many things. In Proverbs 31, this is a virtuous woman. This is God's idea of a perfect helpmate. Um, and we won't go through, we won't read all of it, but you can at any time. Proverbs 31, verse 10 to 31. It says, um, this is good to know, whether you're male or female, because we're supposed to be Jesus Christ's help meet right now. Even if you are a male, your job is to be the perfect mate for Jesus Christ. It says, the heart of her husband doth safely trust in her. Okay. Can Jesus Christ safely trust in you that you're not going to stray? No invitation right now. <laughs> she will do him good. Are you going to always do God good? Um, she works willing. That's Proverbs 31, verse 11 to 31. You can just go through that passage and pick out the things that it, it zeroes in on and said, this is a great help meet. And then apply it to yourself. If you're a wife, you can apply it as a, as a husband-wife relationship, but you should, you should also apply it to Jesus Christ. You're the bride of Christ. As his bride, you should qualify in these areas. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Titus 2, verse 3 to 5. So a woman is supposed to do all of those things, and a man is supposed to do all of those things in our relationship with God. Here's a th- something that a woman is supposed to do. Titus three, uh, Titus two, verse three to five. First, Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. One of those little books toward the back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Titus two, verse three to five. He says, "The aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accuser, not given to much wine, teachers of good things." So that's what a woman is supposed to grow into—a teacher. The help meet helps not only the husband, but watch who she's going to help. Verse 4. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So a help meet helps not only the husband, helps the children, of course, but it's going to help other young women that come along. And that's the job of a, a wife. 
you begin in Proverbs learning what qualities you're supposed to have. As you get older, those qualities just become part of you. Now you've got something to teach that needs to be passed on. And this generation that's coming up now doesn't have a clue. Okay, back to Genesis 2.18. Genesis 2.18. Genesis 2.18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make and help me for him. Okay, so the help me is for him. Not the other way around. He's not the helper for her. She's the helper for him. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 12 to 14. 1 Timothy 2, verse 12 to 14. This is Paul. He says, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. But I fear, lest by any means the serpent beguiled, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. Oh, uh, I moved on, didn't I? Okay. I, I'm just moving. <laughs> okay, that's Second uh, Corinthians. Let's go back. Let's stay right where you are. He says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Okay? Adam was created first, so while the woman is supposed to be a helpmeet, he should have been a helpmeet to her. <coughs> Anything she can do, he can do better. <laughs> should be able to. And he didn't, well, he didn't do this better. He didn't help her when the time came that it was needed. He was made first. He was not deceived. Where's his help? He ain't helping nobody. He's trying to help himself. That was wrong. Uh, look at Second um, Corinthians. Second Corinthians eleven. We give Eve a hard time, but really, Adam should get a harder time than Eve. That's right. That's right. Eve was deceived. He was there. He was there, and he should have unfuzzied the cloudy mind that she had. That was what his job was, to be the authority, and he didn't do it. He was looking out for himself. Okay, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, he's given us an Old Testament principle, put a spiritual application on it in the New Testament. Let's look at both. The Old Testament principle is this. Eve was fooled through subtlety. Okay, the devil was not uh, brazen and bold. He didn't lay all the cards out. He lied to her, and she was fooled. It's subtle, and that's the way all of us get fooled, is it's subtle. Rarely do we just jump into something we know is wrong. We just get a little bit here and a little bit there. We try to push the line. Maybe the boundary's over here. It's not right what it is. And then that subtle thing turns into corruption. The conscience. Mm-hmm. The more you just allow, it, it hardens. 
He says, so your mind should be corrupted. That's where it starts. It's not the big actions that produce problems. It's the mind, the thinking. If the mind can get corrupted, any action is possible. Now he said, um, that so, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So in Christ Jesus, we're the bride. He's the husband. He's the leader. So in the church age, we shouldn't be corrupted because we should ask him, what's this decision? What's right? What's wrong? This looks fuzzy to me. Where's the answer? You know, I heard a good argument for this. Show me the right thing. And you can do that. All of us can. You say, okay, God, I see a problem right here. Life tells me this. Other verses tell me this. But I see this one that says something else. What's the answer? That's what you do. And it may be years and years before you get the answer. But, but that's a good place to start. Sure. First, I, I've got... First John 3.15 that I worked on probably 10 years before I felt comfortable with an answer for it. But if you're trying to do the right thing yeah. and it's a mm-hmm. moral dilemma, so to speak. Oh, yeah, no, not an action. An action, he'll tell you immediately. Yeah. But if it's a doctrine or a, a, a something um, non-essential, he'll make you work for it. <laughs> you'll appreciate it when you've worked for it. I got one right now I'm working on. I don't want to tell you what it is. All right, First Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Now, we know you're not born in God's image. So how does that work? He just said the man is the glory and image of God. So are you in God's image or are you not? The only go ahead. It's like the picture. Well, no. Um, yeah, that's what we're talking about is the picture. In the Old Testament, Adam was created in God's image, but Seth and all the descendants after that were not created in God's image. They were in Adam's. Mm-hmm. But look at verse seven. For man indeed ought not cover his head. For as much as he is the image and glory of God. So are you in the image of God? There's one way to get in that image. That's get in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God. So if you're in Christ Jesus, you qualify. He's rebirthed you. You are now in a new family. You've been given new genealogy. So here he's talking only to Christians. He's not talking to the lost. The people he's talking to are literally in the image of God because they've been redeemed. But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Okay, so the man donated a rib. The woman was stingy. She wasn't donating. No. (laughs) Neither was the man created for the woman. Okay, so there was a purpose in this creation. It wasn't just he wanted to build something new. He didn't look at man and or Adam and say, oh, I can do better, here's a woman. He didn't do that. There was a purpose in it. <laughs> Neither was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. 
for this cause, because of that saying, because Eve was created for man, he's already shown you an authority structure. Now look at verse 10. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head. Okay, stop there and we'll get the rest of this in a second. The woman ought to have power on her head. Authority. There should be an authority over the woman because remember how she came along to begin with. It was Eve. Eve was created for man. So Adam was supposed to be the authority. He was not deceived when the devil came along. Eve was. So because of that, the way God set it up was man will naturally be more suspicious. Not as susceptible to a subtle attack from the devil. So the man should be able to clear it up. Keep reading. So the woman's supposed to have power on her head because of the angels. <laughs> okay. Because of the angels, because there's something supernatural going on. There's a supernatural world out there that's going to try to deceive a woman. And if she won't open her mouth and ask the husband what's the answer to this, she will be deceived. Even someone who's newly been saved. I give this advice. Somebody who's... Um, who's not really um, that spiritual and, you know, just been saved or, or just not really growing much. If the woman is, the advice I give them is this. She, she wants her husband to be spiritual, of course. So, okay, so do this. You can't demand it. It doesn't happen that way. You can ask a question. Men like to have an answer. So, you find a question in your Bible. What did he mean by this over here and this over here? Who cares if he gets the answer right or wrong? That's not the point. The point is he's going to have to exert authority by giving a Bible answer, giving an opinion. Now, he may give it totally wrong. It's okay. It's okay. All we're doing is trying to put him in the habit of giving a Bible answer. At some point, God's going to wake him up and say, Hey, buddy, you don't have any of those right. <laughs> Look over here. Did you hear that verse last Sunday? Well, you told her this the other day. <laughs> what does a woman do if her husband has absolutely no interest in the Bible at all? Right? Same thing. And Is he, he saved? Is he saved? Mm, the difference in a saved or a lost? about is supposedly. Okay, good. If, there's, if they are saved... Or they claim to be saved. They don't have to live like it. If they claim to be saved, same advice. Ask a Bible question. That does a bunch of things. Now he's accountable to God. God requires him to know something. So now it's not just her he's answering to. He's answering to God. Because as we'll see in just a minute, there's an authority structure set up by God and God holds everybody accountable for their position. And I'll show it to you just a second. In fact, it's going to be right here. Um, because of the angels. Verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither is the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. 
So there's an authority structure here, but God does not limit it to the ability of humanity because we're human. So your husband may be in rebellion against God and there's nothing you can do about it. That's what he's saying, verse 12. They're both of God, so God will give you an answer even if your authority won't. Read that verse. For the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. So he's saying God made them both. God will deal with each individually. Go ahead. And then lost. If you're dealing with a lost person. With a lost person, you have to deal with them. They have to view your chaste conversation. Right. That's the only way out. So don't ask them a Bible question? Nope. Nope. Well, you can't. You can, but I don't. That's not going to to do anything. Um, the way the Bible says to win them is by their conversation, your way of life, the way you live, the attitude you have toward your authority, will be how God responds. God set this authority thing up, so the way you respond is this. You don't just do the best you can. That's a bad move. You do the best God told you to do. Now it's not your fault. <laughs> it's his. So you say, God, I would really like him to be more spiritual to do this, to do that. However, in my position, I'm not given the right to demand it. So, you said, by my chaste conversation. So I'm going to do the best I can in the position I've been given and be as nice and sweet as I can. Now you've told God something. You told him it's your fault. <laughs> okay, he takes it serious. Now he'll start moving on that man's heart. Now that doesn't mean that everything's going to be hunky-dory. It might be he's plowing up some fallow ground. Destruction may come to wake him up. But that's the way to do it. Just follow the rules. Tell God you're following the rules. And you're not doing it in your own understanding. Because your understanding would tell you to do something else. And ours would. You just do it according to Bible. And say, God, you said it. I'm going to follow it. And if it falls apart, let it go. Because that's what you said to do. And then watch him do something. Alright, uh, Genesis 2. Genesis 2, verse 24. Genesis 2, 24. It says, therefore... Did we cover that one? Everybody comfortable with that? Okay. Uh, the last one. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Okay, this is a good verse to know. You need to know what's in here. I'm going to give you a bunch of other verses that go with it, but this is a good verse to know, because this is what God calls marriage. It's no... Decide which sex you are. It's no uh, two of the same sex. God has decided. It's not polygamy. There's not three of them involved. It's two become one. God's math. It's the only way it works. Uh, he says a man... So don't consider yourself a man if you've not left your mother and your father. 
when you get married, you leave the nest. A man does. Now, if you're going to be a little sissy boy and play like you're married, <laughs> then you can stay in their house. But don't call yourself a man, because God doesn't. So therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife. Matthew 19, verse 5. Matthew 19, 5. This is Jesus. He gives the same answer. Jesus says, And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain, that's two, shall be one flesh. So the two of them is going to be acting like one. And that's the job of a husband and a wife. They are to present a united front. It's them against the world. God has put those two together, and between the two of them, they'll be able to figure out how anything needs to be taken care of in life. Anything that affects them in life, it'll be the two of them God's going to reveal the answer to, not somebody else. Your counselor's not going to have the answer for you. The problem with these counselor things is the alienation of affection. The counselor suddenly becomes such a wise man that we should worship. No, sir. God's going to reveal it to the two of you. You two get together. If you're saved, there's no excuse. Three becomes God's signature. God and two humans makes a strong cord. And that won't be easily broken. All right, Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, verse 7. We're just covering what's here. I, this is not a subject I'd normally teach on, but it's here. Mark 10, verse 7. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Okay? So that tells you something. What's cleave mean? Hold on tight. It's easy to let go. That's what he's saying. Cleave to his wife. So that's something you take responsibility for. You're going to make the marriage work. Period. You cleave. There's a whole bunch of leaving and then relieving. <laughs> and no cleaving. First Corinthians sixteen. First uh, Corinthians six sixteen. First Corinthians six sixteen. What? He's making fun of them. What? No, you not. Are you this stupid? That he which join that he which is joined to an harlot is one body. For two said he shall be one flesh. So he's saying, he's not saying they got married. He's saying you're acting like it. So you're acting like you're equal. You're acting like you've become one. So, what's the Bible word for that? The Bible word for that is a whoremonger. Someone who is um, eliciting, giving business to a whore. It's a whoremonger. It takes two. For the business practice to work, 
has to be a whore and there has to be a whoremonger. Somebody to use the service. So he says those two are one. They're all, they've got the same brainwave. They're alike. So here he's talking to Christians in the church. Can you imagine this? Needs to be preached in our churches. There's a whole lot of it going on. Ephesians 5, 31. Ephesians 5, 31. Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. <laughs> but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So there's a picture of this whole thing. This whole thing, God instituted it, set it up way back at the beginning with Adam and Eve for a reason. He knew what was going on. He set the whole picture up. He said, you're going to see my relationship with my church, with my people, through marriage. Uh, the man leaves the authority of his home that he grew up in, his mother and his father, and he becomes the authority of his new home with his wife, his children, if they have children, the dog, the cat, you know. <laughs> he becomes the new king of the castle. He's used, he should be used to being obedient to the king he was under before he left. Now here's the other problem. Many boys are leaving the castle, but they've never been obedient to the king of that castle. They go out, and God gives you exactly what you've been. He gives you a mirror. So then they have children, and lo and behold, nobody will do what he says. Nobody wants to... I know how to run this castle, is what he's thinking. And the kids won't obey him. Now... Some of that has to do with the age, too. The age we're living in, rebellion is going to abound because the Antichrist is on the way. And the closer we get to it, the more wicked this world becomes. The husband should be responsible enough to prepare for marriage. Okay? Preparing for it in Genesis chapter 2.18 was this very simple thing. Leave father and mother, cleave to your wife. Now let me ask you something. Who was... Moses, or who, not Moses, who was, <laughs> I'll tell you, who was Adam and Eve's father and mother that they were leaving? No, not in 2.18, they're just, he just made her. But he said, this is the way he set it up, leave father and mother. <laughs> well, there's a principle here, just going to get deep. <laughs> I know it. Why, why did I have to go there? Okay. Here's the thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're not going to go there because I want to move on because we've got a lot to cover. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he gives you the um, whole outline for marriage, divorce, remarriage, and somebody staying sung, single. He says in there that a single person is job is to only please the Lord. That's their only job. And it's easy for them to do that. That's what Paul says. He says, however, if you're married, you have to care for the things of this world, how you may please your wife. Mm -hmm. 
So, Adam, having to leave father and mother, suddenly he has to split his devotion. Now, I don't mean it like he's putting God second place, but I do mean that he's now got to find time to donate affection and uh, happiness to the wife. What makes her happy? Bigger clothes. Right. <laughs> More shoes. <laughs> All, right. All of that. So that's what we're talking about. That he had to leave father and mother as in he couldn't be just dedicated all day long him and God chit-chatting because now he's got another responsibility. Make sure you're pleasing your wife just like God's been doing with you. Um, let's lighten this up. A little boy was attending his first wedding. After the service, his cousin asked him, how many women can marry one man? Sixteen, the boy responded. His cousin was amazed that he had an answer so quick. How do you know that? Easy, the little boy said. All you have to do is add it up. The preacher said, four better, four worse, four richer, four poorer. <laughs> God has one. One. There's only one. <laughs> Genesis 3, verse 1. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more subtle. I like the first word of that because it's still true. Now the serpent was more subtle. He still is. Then any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So the first words that Satan has to say in the Bible in, in context with Adam and Eve is positive. He says, Yea, Yay! Whoopee! <laughs> that's, that's still the same way foreigners talk. They'll, uh, a, a Spanish person will say, um, Yes, isn't this so? Um, they'll, they'll answer it positive as though they're asking a question. That's what the devil's doing here. He's telling you on the front end how you should answer him. Yes, yes. He's preconditioning you. And then asking a question. Um, Romans chapter 16. Romans 16 verse 18. Here's the subtle attack that still happens by the thousands, maybe millions, every day. Romans 16, 18. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And, here's the attack, by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Good words and fair speeches is going to be all positive. They're going to give you a carrot to run after. And it's not till you've been running around the track and you're out of breath and can't move anymore that you realize, hey, that's on a stick and I'll never get it. <laughs> They're going to deceive with good words and fair speeches. It's not so much the tone of voice, it's the content of the word. What was said? 
right now you can see it big as day with Hillary and Obama. I'll go here for a second. Um, what was the one I was telling you about today? The, um, the one she was, they fact-checked. Um, oh, yes. This, this wasn't on the, 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 um, the debate. But Trump had said she smashed eight iPhones with a hammer since she's been on um, the campaign trail. And that, this is on Hillary's website. So her reply to that is, an aide said no, she only saw her smash two with a hammer. Okay, well, that's, okay, that's the emotional response is why. The fact is question and answer. The question wasn't how many did so-and-so aid see. That was not the question. The statement was she has smashed eight. I didn't ask which aid knew what. I just gave you a total. So Hillary is the one we're talking about. Hillary should have gone on there and say, no, I've Never smashed eight, but I have smashed seven and a half. (laughs) (laughs) See, you answer the question direct. Here's another one she did. Trump said, um, since I started doing my um, press conferences on the tarmac, you know, in front of the plane, now Hillary's copying me. Okay, this is on Hillary's website. Her response to that is... Trump is not the one who invented a tarmac press conference. That was not the issue. The issue is you're copying what he's doing. After he started doing it, you began to do it. So why are we jumping to who invented it? That doesn't have anything to do with anything. It's subtle. Subtle. It's a redirect to make it emotional. That's what the devil's going to do. Good words, fair speeches, but no answers. John eight forty four. Mm-hmm. John eight forty four. John eight forty four. Says you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. That's the problem. Truth. How about some truth? because there is no truth in him when he speaketh a lie he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it so you didn't make up that lie by yourself you're not smart enough for that the devil helped you you ask your daddy give me a good one tell me a line to use right now so don't be a liar Acts chapter 5 Acts 5, verse 3. But Peter said, Annas, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? This is when Ananias and Sapphira come in there and said, hey, we sold the land for so much and we're going to just donate it all. And... Peter says, hey, look, you didn't have to give it all. When it was yours, when you sold the land, you could do with it anything you wanted to. The problem is you lied about what you did. You didn't sell it for this much. You sold it for that much. 
and you're only giving us this much, and that's fine. However much you want to give is fine. That's another good thing to note on that passage is that Peter didn't say, you owe us 10%. He said, while the land was in your hand, was it not yours to do with as you see fit? So he, he didn't say you had to give 10%. He said it was yours, you can do anything with it you want. The problem is, Satan showed up real quick. When a person wants to do something spiritual, Satan wants to show up right as soon as you do that and give you an alternative. And still do both. That's what he does to Eve. He says, look, I know you want to please God and that's spiritual and all that good stuff, but I'll help you be a better Christian. Watch this, it'll make you wise. Now you'll know more. Isn't that what all Christians want? To know more? Let me give it to you. It's right here in this little fruit. Here, Peter says, Satan filled thine heart to lie. Satan did it. So when you get ready to do something good, you still got to be on guard. <laughs> you never can let your guard down. Look at Acts 13, verse 8. Acts 13, 8. But Elmas the sorcerer, for his name, uh, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Okay, so somebody's trying to keep someone from hearing the truth. Then Saul, who's, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of subtlety, as in the serpent was more subtle than any other beast. And all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord. Okay. That's not a Joel Osteen message, but... No <laughs> way. <laughs> that's what the devil does, and that's what his children do. They try to convince a person of something that they'll easily buy into. Um, and they use subtlety and try to divert attention away from truth. And the best way to do it is make it all positive. Ignore the negative. Revelation 12 verse 9. Revelation 12, 9, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, that's what we saw in Genesis 3, called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He's been at it a long time. He's real good. He's real good. And he ain't even really got started yet good. <laughs> Wait till the tribulation. You'll see what real deception is. He was cast uh, out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Um, and then you can just put down a cross-reference of chapter 13, verse 14, basically saying the same thing. All right, let's move on. I've got, yeah, we're going we, slow. Maybe we, we won't be here for the tribulation. Oh, we're not going to be here for the tribulation. No, I, I'm not. Genesis 3, verse 7. Genesis 3, 7. 
So devil has been successful. He's deceived them. He's fooled them. They've taken of the fruit they knew not to. Genesis 3 verse 7. And the eyes of them both were open. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together. And made themselves aprons. Okay. Here's what they'd been promised. You'll be like gods. You'll know good and evil. You'll be wise. You'll be smart. Um, you'll be equal with God. They go ahead and take of it. Something happens. Their eyes are open. Okay, they know something now. They can see something they couldn't see before. And they knew a fact. They were naked. They had visual and mental power they didn't have before. And where did it come from? The devil. The devil offered them something that was cloaked as righteousness. Their response to it is, I've got to become more holy. I'll get me an apron. <laughs> that was what they were going to do. They were going to cover their nakedness. Now, we're, we tend to ignore if that were us. But in our position... The devil can open your eyes and give you understanding of something spiritually that is wicked in your life that needs covering. And he's right there to offer you a fig leaf. Fig leaves in the Bible are self-righteousness. Self-righteousness will never cover. God calls it an apron, not a dress, not, you know, a poncho, an apron. Very partial coverage. And then it was made out of fig leaves. Come on, how long is that going to last? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess she knows. Back when she was a little girl. <laughs> Matthew 24, 32. I pick them up by the can. Matthew twenty Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When its branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. Okay, so you can know something. If you're going for fig leaves, you know something else is coming ahead of it or behind it. And so that tells you there's another season to follow. The season that was going to follow Adam and Eve was punishment because sin deserves a payment. So they got fig leaves. Jesus says right here, fig leaves are perfect for a man to know when a season has ended and when one's begun. Adam and Eve should have known, hey, we're, these things just came in season, let's use them for an apron. No, sir, that season tells you something's about to end. Grace. About to get some punishment. Mark 11, verse 12. Mark 11, verse 12. 
Mark 11, verse 12. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was in hunger. He was hungry. And seeing a fig tree far off, having leaves, okay, like what Adam and Eve saw, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. So you can find a bunch of self-righteousness without any fruit. And that's easy to do. Because self-righteousness produces a lot. <laughs> trash cans finding its own place. <laughs> <laughs> Verse 14. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. So Jesus said, Look, I'm going to curse this tree because all I see are leaves. Leaves aren't enough. You need some fruit. And in your life, self-righteousness works something that you can do to cover iniquity is never good enough. It's not fruit. Romans chapter 10. Romans 10 verse 3. Is for they being uh, ignorant of God's righteousness. Romans 10, verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, that's a fig leaf, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. The thing they should have done is immediately... Yeah, Romans 10, 3. The thing they should have done is immediately cried out to God, Said, hey, we messed it up. <laughs> now, how are we going to ever get a coverage? But they ran and hid and tried to make some aprons. As though God wasn't going to notice, they made some aprons. <laughs> they got their eyes open. They got some information in their head. But they didn't get any smarts. They got wisdom on how to make a, a, a covering that wouldn't cover. The worldly wisdom, but they didn't get any knowledge how to get a real garment. You can't get that, God has to give it to you. Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, verse 33. Deuteronomy 28:33 The fruit of thy land and all thy labors shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up and thou shalt be only oppressed and crushed alway so that thou shalt be made uh, mad for the sight of thine own eyes which thou shalt see their eyes suddenly saw something they'd never seen before and it connected mentally. They understood what they were seeing. And it made them crazy. They thought a fig leaf was going to cover them. Verse 35. The Lord shall smite thee in the knees and in the legs with a sore blotch that cannot be healed from the sole of thy foot unto the top of thy head. Sin covered them completely. Immediately. They got some aprons out, but the aprons didn't cover what sin had done. Sin completely covered them. Apron is only a partial covering. Genesis 3, verse 9. 
Genesis 3, verse 9. And the Lord called unto, Ab uh, unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? <laughs> like he didn't know. <laughs> but this wise boy, Adam, <laughs> needed somebody to confront him with the facts. The facts are, hey, you got so wise, you got all this wisdom so that you could be like a god, and now you're running and hiding. What good did it do you? You wanted to be just like God, just like the other gods that you've seen? You wanted to make up your own rules? Do what you thought was good? Look around, Adam, you're hiding. Where are you? How well did that work out? Um, yeah. At, this is instruction for Adam, not information for God. <laughs> God knew where he was. <laughs> There's nothing hid from God. Uh, he needed to face it. He needed to face that he had sinned and he was hiding and that what he had used to cover himself wasn't good enough. He was scared to come out in the, in the open with it. He needed to speak up. Just like we all do when we sin, we need to speak up. Yep. I did. Genesis 4 9. Genesis 4 9. God likes to ask questions he knows the answer to. And it's not because he wants you to say the answer, it's because he wants you to understand the answer. When a man refuses to answer the question asked, makes up some other answer like we talked about with this uh, fact-checking thing. When he refuses to answer the exact question asked, it's because he's hiding something. He's hiding sin. Genesis 4-9. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where's Abel thy brother? Hey, I can't find Abel. <laughs> and he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Um... <laughs> You have to be careful how you answer God. God knows exactly where he was. And God knew what Cain knew and what he didn't know. Cain says, I know not. Oh, really? Okay, he's writing it down. We got proof he wrote it down because we just read it. <laughs> but he's writing it down up in heaven too. Just like us. Your conscience will prick you and God will ask a question. Be careful how you answer God. When he asks you a question, tell the truth. Because he's going to write it down. Uh, Genesis 11 verse 5. Genesis 11 verse 5. This is the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11.5 And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men did build. <laughs> like he was real interested in it. I see what they've done now. <laughs> How far they've got. <laughs> They're putting up a dollar general down the road from us and they have thrown that thing up. It's probably been two weeks. That thing's already almost done. I'm just amazed at it. But that's on Cervantes. Um, Right where the body shop used to be? Yes. Um, Ron's body shop or something? Don't love it, yeah. That's not what God's doing. 
God's not coming down saying, I wonder how much progress they've made. (laughs) (laughs) What he's doing is he's saying, don't make me come down there. You straighten it up. But they didn't. They didn't, and he came down. And then he split it all up. Revelation 20, verse 12. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. Okay, those are the books where he's recording. He recorded what Cain said. He recorded what Cain already knew. He recorded the question he asked him. It's all being recorded. Your conscience is a recorder. At night, when you're laying in bed and you're rehashing the day in your mind... God will say, hey, was that right? Shouldn't you have done this or that? Answer it correctly. He's recording it. It doesn't have to be verbal coming out of your mouth. He knows the thoughts and intents of your heart. Make sure they're right because it's getting recorded. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, we've seen a book of life. We're about to see a tree of life in a second. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. All the lies a man tells himself to ignore God are recorded. And that's basically why a man lies. is just to give himself peace of mind that it's okay. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd just tell the truth. You already know what it is. <laughs> Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell were delivered up, delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to the works. This record won't lie. And the judgment will be true when it's set. Genesis 3, verse 12. Now people try to say that um, Eve was not with Adam, that she wandered off. I don't find any Bible for that. It says that she gave to Adam, who was with her also. So they were there together. Adam didn't speak up. He knew what was going on. The woman was buying into it, and he watched it happen right before his eyes and didn't say anything. Um, Genesis three twelve. The man uh, and the man said, "This is Adam trying to cover for himself. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me." She gave me of the tree and I did eat. You know, the thing you said was going to be a blessing, a help to me. Look where it got me. (laughs) Yes. But he does something else. He told God he wasn't good. Anytime we curse something God's given us, it's telling God you ain't a good God. I cannot stand to hear parents complain about their children. Children are a heritage of the Lord. Do not complain about them. I don't care if they get on your nerves. So what? You probably get on God's too. (laughs) Don't complain about it. That's telling God the gift you gave me wasn't good enough. I wanted a different one. Don't do it. That's what Adam did. Genesis 2, uh, 18. Adam blames God by... Blaming the blessing that God had given him. At, uh, Genesis 2.18 And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make and help meet for him. She did end up helping him. 
she helped him fulfill the desire Adam already had. Adam had been watching that tree. He had already been thinking that way. And he knew in his mind he couldn't do it. But all he needed was the helper. She's going to help him positively or negatively. And it depends on his influence. He's going to motivate her to be good, help me, or bad, devil meat. <laughs> and that's what she became. Job 31, verse 33. Job 31, 33. Job is, um, he's been complaining to God and saying, if this happened, then do this. And if, you know, come down here and talk to me, you're ignoring me. If, if you got a problem with me, at least tell me what the problem is so I can fix it. That's in essence what he's saying. And I can understand him. Job thirty-one thirty-three. If I covered my transgression as Adam by hiding mine iniquity in my bosom, Okay, so that tells you something Adam did in the garden. He covered his iniquity by hiding it in his bosom. He had heart trouble. He had heart trouble way before he had fruit trouble. Fruit manifests itself by taking something God told him not to. But the real problem began in his bosom. He was hiding iniquity in there. Verse 40. If I did like Adam, then let me get the same thing Adam got. Verse 40. Let thistles grow instead of wheat, cockle instead of barley. The words Job are ended. Adam's curse was just. Adam got exactly what Job said is an equal repayment. The ground he's got to work on is going to bring up thorns and thistles instead of being compliant with him. Genesis three fifteen. Genesis 3.15 It says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise its heel. This is a promise, of course, of the Messiah to come. And that's a great thing. It's also a promise of the virgin birth, because a woman doesn't have any seed. So it's, um, it's a great promise. The devil takes note of it begins wreaking havoc on humanity from that time forward because he didn't want Jesus to show up. And he did anyway. But he went into full-time service <laughs> at this point to make sure that that seed could not come through. Uh, Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put in between um, the woman and between thy seed. Who's he talking to? So Satan has a seed. And her seed, the woman's going to get a seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Okay, the thy seed in the passage. Here's our references for that. Genesis 6, verse 70. Genesis 6. Um, what? John 6, verse 70. You can see it written right there. No. John 6, verse 70. Now, I'm going to give you a bunch of verses. I'm not going to 
hammer this down and make it hard and fast. You go look at it, study it, and see what you come up with. But I'm going to give you, there's some weird stuff in here. John 6, verse 70 to 71. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Not filled with a devil, not full of a devil, is a devil. Okay? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Okay, so we know Judas Iscariot is of the devil. As in what we just saw in Genesis 3, the devil's got a seed. John seventeen twelve. John seventeen twelve. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those thou gavest me I kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. One of them didn't get eternal security. Judas Iscariot. He says that the scripture might be fulfilled. Well, what's being fulfilled? Thy seed and her seed. There the two of them are. Thy seed and her seed. 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 to 4. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day should not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, as Judas Iscariot, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that as God, uh, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Okay, he's talking about the Antichrist here. But he tells you in verse 3, it's Judas Iscariot. So we know who the Antichrist is going to be. It's going to be Judas Iscariot. You say, how can that be? Judas hung himself. Good question. Revelation 17. Revelation 17, 8. The beast that thou sawest was, Judas Iscariot was alive, and is not, he hung himself, he's not here anymore, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, he's coming back, and shall go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. So he's going to do the same thing Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ says, Behold, I am he that was dead and am alive forever. Uh, he that was, that is, and is alive forever. How's that verse go? I'm messing that all up. Um, anyway, we'll skip it. Come back to it next week. I'll figure it out. <laughs> Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed... Now let's look at her seed. Between thy seed and her seed. We're talking about two supernatural things here. We're talking about a serpent who can have a seed that becomes human. Well, 
that seed in the garden was speaking on a human level with her to begin with. So a seed like a human produces and is Judas Iscariot. We found that clearly. Now we're going to find a supernatural opposite for that and that's Jesus Christ. God comes to the earth as a man. Yes? What does it say about Judas's parents though? Like was it the devil and then like some other person like the sons of God? I told you, you work on it. <laughs> you can, it's one of those things that will blow your mind if you spend too much time thinking on it but yeah, work on it. Isaiah 7 verse 14. Isaiah 7:14 Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call and shall call his name Emmanuel Okay so there he's telling you she's going to get a seed it's man is the one who has the seed but in this case I'm going to give the woman a seed supernaturally and it's going to be Jesus Christ Emmanuel you find it again. I'm just going to give you these references so we can move on. At Jeremiah 22, verse 29 to 30. 22, 29 to 30. Correct. Matthew 1, 18 to 20. Matthew 8, 1, 18 to 20. Matthew 1, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Fulfillment of what we saw in Isaiah. Luke 1, 30 to 34. Luke 1, 30 to 34. Galatians 3.16 He says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is not Ishmael or Isaac. The verse says, which is Christ. Supernatural seed that is more powerful than the devil's seed. Judas Iscariot died. He hung himself. He's coming back. Jesus is going to beat him down again. <laughs> Genesis 3.15. One other thing we need to look at. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. God's calling the um, the seed that he's going to produce a neuter, an it. Now, it's good to notice this way back in Genesis, because when you see it in Matthew, a lot of people will say it needs to be changed. But it doesn't need to be changed. He started out speaking that way. It just means it's something superior to humanity. Humanity is based in two categories, regardless of what they want to say nowadays. Doesn't matter how many bathrooms you've got, humanity is divided into two groups, male and female, period. Here's a it. We don't have an it category. Well, we kind of do have an it category. <laughs> We're trying to produce one. 
This is it from the beginning. Look at Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Shouldn't it say, Art thou not he? No, it says, Art are not thou it? Okay, so God can be, you can talk to, refer to divinity the Godhead, as a neuter. So don't change your Bible when you see the word in a neuter. I'm going to show it to you where it gets changed all the time in the New Testament. Luke one thirty-five. Luke one thirty-five. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also, that holy thing. <laughs> he's, talk, he's calling Jesus a thing. That holy thing, neuter it, which shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God. You see it again, Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit itself. Okay, It doesn't have to be male or female. It doesn't have to fit in your category. Beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Colossians 2.15. I'm just going to move through these fast and y'all can write them down. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a, a show of them openly, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. <laughs> Colossians 2.15. Triumphing as an it. Triumphing over them in it. It, that same it we saw all the way back in Genesis. Hebrews 2.14 For as much then as children are partakers of the flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had power over death, that is the devil. Okay, he said, I only took a body just so I could show you the devil doesn't got anything on me. I'm going to do just what he did and destroy him at his own game. Whatever form he wants to take, I'm still going to beat him. Period. First <laughs> John one. First John one verse one to three. Here you clearly understand that he's talking about Jesus Christ, and we'll go through it. That, not he, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the capital W word of life to explain what he just said verse 2 for the life was manifest and we have seen what? It. it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest unto us so the it there the thing that makes that special is its eternal life no man ever came up with that Man's got to have a male or a female because we die. Eternal life, don't. It's a different category. You can call it an it. It can be a neuter category. <laughs> it's something completely different. Okay, he says, Genesis 3.15. I'm trying not to stop on every word, but every word of this verse is good. <laughs> Genesis 3. And I will put him between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise 
What? Thy head. And thou shalt bruise his heel. What's this head bruising business? <laughs> He's a head bruiser. This is a sign of the Antichrist. The Antichrist gets a head wound. Jesus prophesied it all the way in the garden. He says, I'm going to take that seed you're going to produce, and I'm going to bruise his head. Hadn't happened yet, but we'll see the verses. There's several types. We covered some of this Sunday night. Judges 9.53, And a certain woman cast a piece of millstone upon Abimelech's head, and all to break his skull. Abimelech, that's Judges 9.53, type of the Antichrist. Jeremiah 48.25, The horn of Moab, as in something that comes out of somebody's head, or an animal's head. Jeremiah 48.25, is cut off, and his arm is broken, saith the Lord. You find it again in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 when he talks to, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Eli. Romans 16.20. And the God of peace, this is Paul talking in the church age. And the God, of, this is after the crucifixion resurrection. This is important to know because the charismatics have a different interpretation of this. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. He's saying it hadn't happened yet. Charismatics say it already happened. They say God bruised Satan's head on the cross. No, sir. Because this is after the cross and Paul's saying it'll happen future. Shortly. The shortly is going to be when he comes down at the second advent. Yeah, just two days. Be, yeah, that'll be a real... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Revelation 13, 13. And he doth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. That's what the Antichrist is going to do. He's going to show himself that he's God. He's going to, you know... <laughs> really put on and pull the best deception he's ever deceived in his life. He's had 7,000 years of practice, 6,000. He started back here with Eve and we saw it. And it worked. And you can go through your Bible and you can see one time after the next where he did. And he succeeded. And he deceived. And he's going to go through the tribulation and feel like he is the champion. But it's all going to come crashing down. Genesis three sixteen. Here's the curse to the woman. Genesis 3.16 Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply two things, thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Okay, so he says he's going to multiply conception. Look at it in um, Genesis 6, verse 10. Genesis 6, 10, And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Three of them, triplets. Look at it in uh, chapter 4, I think. 
Genesis chapter 4. Okay. Genesis 4 verse 1. And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. Twins. No separate conception. One conception, two births. Um, look at chapter 5. Yes. Um, when it's when they're individual, it'll show you. Look at chapter nine. Look at verse eight. Now look at verse nine. And Enos lived nine hundred thirty years and begat begat Canaan. And Enos lived after he begat Canaan eight hundred and fifty years and begat sons and daughters. You can go through that chapter and you'll see him separate individual births. But you can see they're greatly multiplied when he gave um, Cain and Abel. They come out together. Two of them. When you get Noah, who's a type of Adam, he comes out with three of them all at once. So a greatly multiplied conception. Two and three children instead of just one at a time. Um, and we'll see more of that as we go on. Um, it's going to crop up again here in a minute. <laughs> he says, uh, she says, he will rule over thee. That was part of the curse. He will rule over the woman. In Ephesians 5.22, he says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, you can take that and fill in whatever position you're in and then look at it spiritually in whatever spiritual position you're in. We are the bride of Christ, so you're female as far as Jesus Christ is concerned in comparison to Jesus Christ. So you fit in that. You should be in subjection. If you're saved, you should be in subjection to Jesus Christ, period. Period. If you have a husband, there's the rules for that. If you're the husband, then you fulfill those parts. But I'm talking spiritually. You can see what applies to a husband and wife and know he gave a husband and wife as a picture. The picture is of him and the church. You're the church. You fill the, the female role. First Timothy two fourteen. Now oh, we've covered this before. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, charity, and holiness with sobriety. Okay, so there's um, there's a whole lot there. <laughs> Adam wasn't deceived. The woman was deceived. The woman now has to follow this chain of command. She should have naturally followed the chain of command. We don't get any instruction God gave them. It's implied, but it's not set in stone. It's not been written out. So I'm not going to say he told them, this man's in charge of you, woman. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's implied. It's implied. It's implied very strongly because it says she was made for him 
Adam was made, then the woman. Um, he implies those things as though they should have understood the authority structure. Um, he says here that uh, she'll be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity. So the, the time that the woman is going to be most susceptible to the devil's deceptions is in childbearing because that's when her emotions are going to be greater. The devil showed up with an emotional plea. Hey, I'll make you wise. I'll make you just like God. Okay? That all sound happy and emotional. Adam looked at it and said, Man, I'm hungry. That's all he was looking at. His God was his belly. It was his belly. He's like, I've, had, I've already eaten all this other stuff. I'm sick of it. Give me something new. <laughs> that fruit over there is looking mighty good and I'm mighty hungry. But he looked at it and he understood. Eve was trying to get some philosophical you know, truth out of it. Adam could care less. He said, man, I've been wanting one of those all. You go try it. See what happens. <laughs> First Peter 3. First Peter 3. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husband, that if any obey not the word, they may they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Okay, that's for if you're married to someone who's not saved, they can be won without Bible. They can be won by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Who's adorning? Let it not be the outward adorning, a plaiting of hair, or wearing gold and putting on of apparel. So don't you don't have to buy your women gold earrings. Um, <laughs> that was verse 3. <laughs> but let it be... But let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is a great price. For after this manner, in old time, the holy men, uh, holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. Okay, so God has blessed this hierarchy from time's beginning. So he set it up with Adam and Eve, he expects it all through time, definitely here, and that's the one thing the Antichrist is going to change. He's going to say, I don't want anybody marrying, forbidding to marry. She's going to say, let's cut out this marriage business. You can be a partner with anybody you want, and we'll give you their benefits. And we're heading that direction. He's going to be a homosexual. Um, I don't know, do we need to stop? It's been a while. We're only on page 12 of 20. It's almost Sunday. Uh, it's almost... Yeah, we better stop there. It's an hour and a half. Okay, this didn't go very fast tonight. We got a lot of catching up to do. All right, let's... Uh, we'll call that a night, and we'll, we'll pick up there. Remind me Wednesday that we're in chapter 3, verse 17. Chapter 3, 17. Genesis 3, 17. All right, that's okay. Let's go to Genesis three. I think we need to cover seventeen. Did we cover seventeen? Uh-huh. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Okay, so the ground is cursed. Yes. We covered that. Okay. You said the next time we come in, you will be Genesis 3 
Okay, well that is 317. Okay, well, do you have the notes? <laughs> do you have the notes on 317? No. Okay, so, there we go. so we need to cover the notes on it. There we go. Okay, for 317, I've got to get back to it now. <laughs> 317, okay. Um, Isaiah chapter 11. So what this is telling us is that the ground is cursed, and this curse is going to stay on the ground for the duration. Just like the curse man has, we have that curse. Until Jesus Christ decides to lift it, you have that curse. Just like the ground has a curse, this same curse, and it's going to remain on the ground until Jesus Christ comes back and takes it off. In Isaiah 11, verse 6 to 9, here's where he takes the curse off of the ground. He says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. A cow and a bear shall, shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The suckling child shall play on the hole of an asp. The weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. And uh, let's see, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now that's what life would be like had there been no curse placed on the earth. That was the, that was the world that Adam and Eve lived in. It's going to go back to that. When Jesus comes back to this earth in the millennium, he's going to revert things back to the way they should have been. And basically it's just the opposite right now of everything you've seen in that passage. But one day it's going back. In Romans 8, Romans 8 verse 18. Romans 8, verse 18. He says, For I reckon, he's a southerner, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature. Creature. Okay, you get that creature? That doesn't just have to be human. That can be animal. Creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, okay, that includes the plant life, the animals, everything, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. So even animals get pain. Even they have arthritis and issues. Animals do. The plants have issues. Weeds choke them out. It's all groaning just like we are. We're getting old and groaning and arthritis and, <laughs> and bad vision. Animals cancer. Yep. Um, and I, I, that reminds me, I found that um, there is... A, a scientific definitive study that has proved women turn into good drivers. Oh my. So if you're a good driver, watch out for women turning. <laughs> I've been telling the girls that. they don't. I've been seeing them all over town. Every time I see a woman at the wheel making a turn, there's a woman trying to turn into a good driver. 
But that's something we have to put up with. It's because of the curse. <laughs> Part of the curse. Okay, verse 23. And not they only but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. So the curse gets lifted off of the animals and off of the plants the same time we get it lifted off of us. The redemption of our body. Verse, uh, Rome, uh, not Rome, Revelation two, uh, 22, verse 3. Revelation 22, verse 3. This is a verse we want fulfilled. Revelation 22, verse 3. Now, if you don't believe in the Bible, you've got a sad life you live. If you believe in the Bible, you've got hope. Revelation 22, 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and the servants shall serve him. That's one of the benefits to obeying what he says. You get to be part of the no curse. Now there's going to be some cursed people and they go to a cursed place. But as far as what's left, he takes the curse, curse off of it. Genesis 3.21 Genesis 3.21 Genesis 3.21 Genesis 3.21 Genesis 3.21 Genesis 3.21 And unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skin to clothe them? So he said, look, I, I see the leaves that you got right there, and that's not going to last you very long. It's not going to be worth anything. So he said, I'm going to give you some clothes. All they had, they didn't have clothes. It didn't even qualify for the, the definition of clothes. It was apron. <laughs> apron is what was called their, uh, their leave covering. So God gives them coats of skin. Uh, to replace the fig leaves. Um, fig, the fig apron is unacceptable to God because God didn't provide it. If God didn't give it to you, they, get, they went out and did it on their own power. God didn't want you doing something on your own. He's the provider. He wants you to get it from Him. And He did. He gave them some clothes. The other thing is there was no blood shed. You have to have shed blood in order to be clothed in order to be covered. Your sins are not covered unless Jesus Christ shed his blood. If you try to participate in a salvation that's based on works, it's fig leaves. There's no shed blood. Blood has to be shed. In uh, Proverbs 27, 26. We know what he used to make clothes out of. Proverbs twenty-seven twenty-six: The lambs are for thy clothing, and the goats are the price of the field. So he took a lamb, killed it, skinned it, and gave him some clothes with that. In Revelation thirteen eight, we find the other verse. It says, "And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written, whose names are not written in the book of the in the book of life of the Lamb." slain from the foundation of the world. So, that wasn't just any old lamb he used to clothe them with. That lamb was slain from the foundation of the earth, or of the world. That was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ incarnate in that lamb. 
Now, a lot of people have issues with that, but that's just too bad. <laughs> Genesis 3.22. Mm-hmm. Genesis 3.22. Now, you can see God has a real sense of humor. And you can see his sarcasm all the way back here. It says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become one of us, to know good and evil. Now he gets serious. Now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Okay, so there's... He begins by being sarcastic, saying, Oh, he's just like us now. Well, if he was just like them, he couldn't, God couldn't do anything about it. Obviously, he wasn't just like God or else God couldn't have authority over him and demand him leave the garden. And that's exactly what he's going to do. The tree of life is an interesting thing when you look at um, the, uh, the pagans, of course, will make this tree of life into their own concoction of something mystical. And they try to say everything is formed from the tree of life and it's, um, it goes back to the Big Bang is where they try to lead it all back to. And uh, they, they say you can find the tree of life in all forms. And yeah, it's if you want to waste your time, study up on that. <laughs> In Proverbs three, verse thirteen. Proverbs three, thirteen. The tree, the physical tree of life, was removed or uh, eliminated from them getting to it, but we can get to it. Proverbs three, verse thirteen said, Happy is the man that findeth wisdom, and the man that getteth understanding. So this chapter is going to be about wisdom and understanding. Look at verse 18. She, wisdom, is a tree of life to them that lay hold on upon her. And happy is everyone that retaineth her. So you want happiness? You need wisdom. You find a perpetual grump? They're not wise. Regardless of how much junk they know, they have no wisdom. You can have information and education without wisdom. Wisdom comes from God. Look at Proverbs 11, verse 30. The place you find the most information on this tree of life is found in one book. And it's Proverbs, which is the wisdom book. So that tells you what the tree of life is. It's about wisdom. Proverbs 11.30 The fruit of righteousness is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Okay, so um, the tree of life is righteousness. Righteousness is being godly, being godlike, having the characteristics of God. Proverbs 13.12 Proverbs thirteen twelve. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. That is, you wanted something and you were told no. <laughs> that makes you unhappy. But, when the desire cometh, it is a tree of life. Okay? That breathes new hope into you. Now, that can be good or bad. Just like the world has their idea of what a tree of life is. And theirs is wicked. It's a tree of demonic Satanism. Proverbs 15, verse 4. 
Proverbs 15, verse 4. One of the Bible's most often repeated themes is here. A wholesome tongue, that is the things you say, is a tree of life. But perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. So to not have wisdom is detrimental to yourself. He said, come get it. Come get you some wisdom. It's a tree of life. And the person who doesn't get it, not only is unhappy, does not have hope, doesn't have righteousness, they also have a breach in their own spirit. It does something to them. In Revelation 2, verse 7. Revelation 2, verse 7, he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now let's, um, I'm going to give you the doctrinal explanation of this because nobody does. Everybody's going to tell you, most people, I shouldn't say everybody, most people will tell you, Revelation, the first four chapters, are for the time period we're in now. They're obviously not. <laughs> because they'll say that you only hear about the church mentioned in Revelation from Revelation chapter 1 to chapter 4 and then it disappears because there's a rapture. So they claim that that's the time period we're in. The church age is found in Revelation chapter 1 to chapter 4. Now there are some similarities to those churches and the way that Christians act now. That's true. However, there are some vast differences that you cannot doctrinally say that's talking to our age. Look at that verse. He's saying you've got to overcome to get the tree of life. Are we trying to overcome to get the tree of life? We've got the tree of life. We've got all the life there is. If you could find a tree that's better than Jesus Christ, <laughs> then <laughs> there's a major problem. <laughs> okay, so we've got something way better than the tree of life. So that's not talking to us. That's talking to somebody in the tribulation who needs a tree of life in order to get through the millennium and not die. Look at it again. Revelation 22, verse 2. Revelation 22, verse 2. Now this will be the tree of life that was in uh, the Garden of Eden. It's not like any tree that we know about. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yield her fruit every month. Okay, so that tells you how many months are in a year? Twelve. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So, there's something completely foreign about that tree <laughs> than any tree we've seen. Look at verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to eat of the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. Okay, that's somebody in an Old Testament sense who's trying to earn a right. We don't earn it that way. We're not trying to get into the city by the works of righteousness that we do. But somebody will be. Genesis 3, verse 24. Genesis 3, 
Genesis 3.24. I got a new mouse and I'm trying to figure out how to make it work. There we go. So he drove out the man and placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Okay, so he put some cherubims down there and he said, look, don't let them get back to it. You're going to keep it out. You're going to take that sword and don't let anybody get close to it. The indication is he would cut them up if they tried to get too close to it. It was scary enough that nobody's trying to get to the tree. Now, you'll find somebody in the next chapter who tries to go to that, get over there. Uh, Let's look at these cherubims. Genesis uh, 3.24, he says they're plainly cherubims. He didn't say angels. He didn't say seraphims. He told us exactly what they are, cherubims. You find those in Ezekiel 10. Ezekiel 10, verse 14. A cherubim is not like (laughs) um, a little fat baby that sits on a cloud and... and (laughs) shoots an arrow into an heart. That's not a cherub. Ezekiel 10, 14. And everyone had four faces. Okay? So whatever this thing is, it has a face on every side of its head. Had four faces. Um, The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face was the face of a man. The third face the face of a lion, and the fourth face, the face of an eagle. Notice he's covered all um, all mammals except for one. The reptile is not mentioned because that was a different animal, and that's the devil. Revelation 4. Revelation 4, verse 7. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast like the face as a, as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. Okay, so it's not two wings sticking out, it's six wings and they were full of eyes within, and they rest night, uh, not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. That's the verse I was looking for a couple weeks ago. <laughs> which was, which is, and is to come. That shows uh, past, present, and future. Um, so that's a cherubim. It's not like anything you've seen pictured uh, by an artist anywhere. That's a scary being. And God said, you'll watch that tree for me. You'll find in Ezekiel 2 that when they decide to go somewhere, they don't turn. They just go in the direction of whichever face is facing toward it. It says when they go, they go straight forward. So if they wanted to take a right, the face that's sitting on... Or, I don't know what my right and left is. If they wanted to go left that face on the left side of them would move straight um, rather than turning like we do. A lot of good information on that in there and it'll, it's, um, 
It's not like, it's almost science fiction sounding when you read it. Uh, but it's God truth is what it is. Genesis three twenty four. So he drove out the man and placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way. Now this flaming sword must be a doozy. Uh, I mean, it wasn't enough just to put these scary beasts there. He put a flaming sword. I would have thought, hey man, that, that animal right there is scary enough to keep me out. But he said, no, nah, let, let's take it up another notch. Here's a flaming sword. And you're going to swing this thing back and forth just in case anybody gets any ideas that they're big and bad like this crazy beast I've put down there. Uh, in Second Kings 2, fire is a big thing you see that shows up. A flaming sword. It had a flame. Fire is one of the oldest things worshipped. Fire is. Where a lot of that comes from is a perversion of truth. God, Our God is a consuming fire. That's who he is. But fire is not God. <laughs> That's a big difference. So the pagans want to worship the sun, a ball of fire. They want to worship fire itself. 2 Kings 2 verse 11. This is when Elijah is ended his earthly ministry. And it came to pass, as they went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Okay, so fire is something from God. Fire is something God uses. Now, we know fire is in hell. Fire is in the lake of fire. But it's a different kind of fire. This is a good fire. That's a bad fire. You don't want to be in that one. If you're qualified, God will protect you in this one. And it'll be good. Look at it in Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, 29. Was it the same fire at the bush? Yes. Jeremiah 23:29. Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Okay, so not only did he put these people um, out of the garden. He said, look, you've got to leave, take a hike, don't come back. He said, there's going to be a beast standing right here, and he's big and bad. Matter of fact, one of them, you look at one of them, you'll think you drink, you've been drinking something, because you're going to see four faces. <laughs> And I'm going to put a flaming sword down there. What's that represent? That represents, it should embed itself in your mind as the word of the Lord said, don't come any closer. Because he says, is not my word as fire, as a fire. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 29. He says, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, he didn't just say our God is fire. That's what the pagans say. That's what the pagans want to do is worship a powerful fire, the fire God, 
as in Sunday. What the Bible says is, for our God is a consuming fire. It consumes something. That's a judgmental God. Um, Revelation 19, verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness doth he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, just like what he put over there in the garden. And on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew, but he himself. He was clothed with vesture dipped in blood, because he's been fighting. And his name is called the Word of God. See how that word and fire get put right together? And the armies, that'll be you and me, which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp two-edged sword. Remember, we saw earlier that um, his word was like fire. And out of his mouth is going a sharp two-edged sword, like we saw in the garden, a, a flame of fire, a sword of fire. Um, that with it he should smite the nations and should rule them with a rod of iron. And Okay, so God is going to be not only a king. When Jesus Christ comes back to take this earth, he's not only going to rule it. He's not going to be in a, a republic or a democracy system. He's going to be a king and a dictator. He says he's going to rule them with a rod of iron. You don't hear anybody talk about a, even a good king as saying they ruled with a rod of iron. That's usually a term given to a despot. But Jesus comes back and he says, Look, I'm dictator and king. You got a problem with me? I'll just cut you in pieces. <laughs> and that's the God we serve. That's Jesus Christ. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of, and wrath of the Almighty God. And he hath on his vestures and on his thighs a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is, he don't get no higher. <laughs> so this tree of life, Genesis 3.24. Genesis 3.24. So he drove the man. Uh, so he drove out the man and placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubs, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Okay, so that tree of life we discussed a lot of things about it. Look at John chapter fourteen. There's an interesting phrase in Genesis three. He said. He was keeping the way of the tree of life. Not simply the tree of life, but keeping the way of the tree of life. John fourteen six. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the tree of life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. You don't get to Jesus Christ until you've 
put yourself under the sword until you've said, I'm already accursed. Your wrath is already on me. I recognize that I'm a sinner and I'm full of sin. The only way out is somebody take my place. Jesus Christ says, I'm the way. So you want the way of the tree, tree of life? There's only one place to get it, Jesus Christ. This cherubim in this uh, passage is a warrior. I'll just give you quickly a bunch of things about him in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 10, you'll find these in verse 19 to 22. Uh, the cherubims lift up their wings, plural. We saw they had six of them. Um, and he says, I knew they were cherubs. Uh, you don't see anything else like it. Uh, in verse 21, he said they had four faces apiece. That is, each one has four faces. They have four wings. They have hands of a man under their wings. Um, you get all the, the gory details there in chapter 10. Um, look in uh, Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28:14. Who is this talking about? Ezekiel 28:14. Exactly. Now, who was it that caused problems in the garden? Of course, the same being, Lucifer. So he's on par with the cherub. As we're going to find in a minute, he was the supreme. He was the leader. He was the top dog of the cherubs. So God put two cherubs there, and he gave them a supernatural weapon. He's even keeping the devil away from the tree of life. Uh, Ezekiel twenty-eight fourteen. This is talking to Lucifer. Thou art the anointed cherub. That covereth. Okay, the covering cherub. You'll find later on, you'll see that the cherubs surround the throne. But there was one that covered above the throne. That was Lucifer. He's not there anymore. In verse 16, I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Okay, so he was the cover. He was the top. And he represented the reptile of the species. That's Ezekiel 28, verse 16. In verse 17, he says, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom. So, the cherub was made with wisdom and beauty, according to God. He doesn't have it anymore. It would be just the opposite of that. So, it's something he wanted to get to was that tree of life. Because he no longer got wisdom. The wisdom he has is imitation, fake, man-made or satanic wisdom. Verse 18. Um, I'll bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. Okay, there's the lake of fire is going to start from its founder, <laughs> Satan. He's going to, um, what do you call it, spontaneous combustion. <laughs> he's going to snap his fingers and he's going to blow up into fire. He says fire is going to come out of the midst of him. And that's probably the starter pack for the lake of fire. You find, you find a lot of these uh, strange beings in the Bible. And uh, you, you find a, it referred to as a flying bushel over in Zechariah. 
in Zechariah 5, verse 6, he said, This is an ephah that goeth forth. He said, Moreover, there is a resemblance through all the earth, and behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. This is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. Okay, this is an imitation of what God has. So you've got the satanic world producing their idea of cherub. Their idea of a cherub is female. So God's idea is male. God, so when you see an angel depicted as a female, that's satanic. God's angels are male. The female is this right here. If you keep reading, verse 8, he says, This is wickedness. Yes. Do what? That is Zechariah 5, verse 6 to 11. And you find them building a house in Shinar, which is, um, that's uh, Tower of Babel. Um, you, you, the cross I'll give you a couple of cross-references for this, without going to it, because we don't have all night. Genesis, if you want to look this up on your own, cross-reference Ezekiel 5, verse 6 to 11, with Revelation chapter 17, and Genesis chapter 10, verse 9 to 11. Alright, let's see some more goodies about this. These imitation beings rot a house. Actually, will rot the house. Now, there's a lot of that going on spiritually right now. There's a lot of spiritual wickedness in houses that is rotting the house. Spiritually, each individual is beginning to rot. Now, I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually. Um, in Zechariah 5, if you went back a chapter, he says, uh, Behold a flying roll. So that's like a flying saucer. That's what these, uh, the devil's imitation of a cherub rides in. This is the uh, curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth. So these beings that are in this imitation of a flying saucer, or what we know of as a UFO, is going to show up... Um, in the tribulation and unload some supposed Martians or beings with um, extra human knowledge, something beyond the human scope that's going to come down here and really help us. <laughs> yeah, I won't be around, it'll help them. <laughs> it shall enter into the house of a thief, so forth and so on, shall consume the timbers thereof and the stones thereof. Okay. That's in Zechariah 5, verse 1 to 4. Um, so that what their job is, literally, now they're not going to say that's their job. They're going to say their job is to come to earth and help humanity. Sure, yeah. yeah, what they're really going to do is they're going to consume everything they can, including the very house and stones. Um, God will use even the devil for his own purposes. Sometimes he calls it a threshing machine. In Isaiah 28, verse 27. Isaiah 28. And the whole passage is 24 to 29. We'll pick it up at verse 27. For the fitches are not threshed with a threshing instrument, neither is the cartwheel turned about upon the cunnum. But the fitches are beaten... Out with a staff in the cumin. How do you say that? 
cumin with a rod. Red corn is bruised because he is not uh, ever to be. Red corn is bruised because he will not ever be threshing it, nor break it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. Okay, so what he's saying there is you understand from nature that when you harvest certain things, the way you get to the meat of it, the way it becomes useful is by threshing it or by breaking it or uh, getting at the meat in a different manner. Some things you put a wheel over it, like you grind out wheat. Some things you thresh. You beat it. Um, there's different methods for different things. Verse 29. This also cometh from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. Um, so this is what God does. He uh, sends out a specific punishment that meets each individual need. And when it comes to these beings that have shown up to this earth in the tribulation... That's why this earth is going to be the center of such destruction. Because you've got the culmination of all human and supernatural powers all in one spot. So there's got to be a major destruction going on. Because God's going to mete out total destruction for every measure. So if a human understands a nuclear weapon, he'll give him a nuclear weapon. But what's a supernatural being understand? It's going to be on a completely different level altogether. So that's the way the tribulation is going to go, go down. And I'm glad I won't be around for it. Right? <laughs> Second Kings chapter 2 verse 11. Second Kings 2 verse 11. God's warfare and his army is not like something man knows anything about. We saw this earlier, but let's look at it again. This is Elijah leaving. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that both, uh, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire. Now, we've seen chariots, but we've never seen one of fire, even though we've seen the movie. <laughs> and horses, we've seen horses, but you've never seen horses of fire. Um, and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by whirlwind into heaven. So God's army, when he comes back to defeat both humanity and the supernatural world, it's going to be some supernatural stuff. It's, it's not just the best concoction we can come up with the latest gadgets we know about. It's something on a different plane altogether. Second Samuel 6, verse 6. Threshing is what's done um, in the tribulation. That's how he refers to beating everything to death. <laughs> he threshes it. You'll find that term runs all the way through your Bible. When threshing shows up, something serious is happening. Second Samuel 6, verse 6. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor. Okay, a threshing floor is a bad place. So something bad's going to happen. Watch what happens. Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God 
and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. The oxen hadn't shook the whole time they'd been around. How come they choose to start shaking right by the threshing floor? It's a picture of something. When God decides to really do the threshing in Revelation, even the animals are going to shake. He pictured it there. We'll find another one. 2 Kings 6. Second Kings 6. Actually, I should have... That's alright. Find Second Kings 6 and put your finger there and then we'll flip back to Second Samuel. Second Kings 6 and then go back to Second Samuel 24. Alright, 2 Kings 6, and then we'll go to 2 Samuel 24. In 2 Samuel 24, verse 21. David has numbered the people when God said don't number the people. You only number them when I tell you to number them. But he said, I want to find out how many people I got. You know, maybe I need to start taking some taxes up or something. <laughs> and God said, look, you done wrong. So, you're going to get punished. Matter of fact, I'm going to give you a choice. Here's three choices. You can choose from which one I do. Here's the way it, it uh, winds up. Verse 21, 2 Samuel 24:21. And Arnon said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. So God's punishment, his wrath, culminates right here with David pointing you to a threshing floor. This is punishment obvious from the passage from God. He said, you pick which one I'm going to do, but I'm going to curse because you did wrong. So he has to make a choice. This is how he, he, um, he finishes the whole deal, is by buying a threshing floor. Because that's what God's doing, is he's threshing. In uh, 2 Kings 6, 17. There's all of this stuff that we're reading about. We think of it as being a long way off and future and, you know, all that stuff. But it's not. It's right here now. We're just not aware of it. Second Kings six seventeen, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes, that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. That supernatural world is already here. It's just God has kept it incognito. But there's coming a day when we leave that he's going to open up and make them manifest to the world. Now the world's going to buy into it as though they're good guys, but they're not. Look at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Luke 3 verse 17. 
This is the destruction that comes in the tribulation. What he's talking about here is a threshing floor whose fan is in his hand. The threshing floor is where you, you beat the, the wheat small and then you throw it up in the air and the, um, the husk will fly away in the wind so you've got a fan going to blow the, the husk away and then the, the actual wheat, which is heavier, will fall to the floor. Whose fan, that is to, to do something at a threshing floor, is in his hand, he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff will he burn with fire unquenchable. Well, we've seen he's a consuming fire, and he's going to be consuming something. And it's the chaff, the wheat, he's going to gather to his barn. That's going to be the tribulation. The Israelites, the remnant of Israel, that will be saved to go into the millennium, that's the wheat. But the chaff is everything left. Humanity and satanic things are going to get burned. Total destruction. Isaiah 20, uh, 28. Isaiah 28, 22. Isaiah 28:22 Now therefore be ye not mockers lest your bands be made strong for I have heard from the Lord of hosts a consumption as in a consuming fire even determined upon the whole earth He's going to that hadn't happened yet because the whole earth is still here one day it won't be. One day it's going to melt, it says, with a fervent heat, as in fire. Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah 10, verse 22 and 23. For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. That is, not all of Israel's getting out. Just being the seed of Abraham is not going to be enough. It never was enough. You still had to obey. <laughs> and that's what they'll have to do in the tribulation. And a handful of them will, but the vast majority won't, just like now. Salvation has never been more simple than it is right now. But the vast majority of people could care less because it doesn't put money in their bank or pleasure on their face. So they say, oh, I don't need it. It's going to be the same here. Even though God's made it very plain. Total destruction or millennial kingdom. Take your pick. But they'll pick the wrong one. Just like Joshua showed up and said, look, I set before you this day. Blessing and cursing. Life and death. Choose life. Now, why would he have to say choose life? Wouldn't that be a no-brainer? But they chose death. They chose it. He also prophesied to them and he said, Look, they told him, Al, we're going to follow all these things. And he says, You can't. <laughs> what a way for a preacher to talk to somebody. <laughs> okay, where are we? Um, Isaiah 10. Did we do that one? 
Did we read it yet? Okay. For the, <laughs> I don't know where I am. <laughs> For uh, verse 23. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption, as in that consuming fire, even determined. Now when he gets determined, you know what's going to happen. <laughs> in the midst of all the land. Yeah, that's how it ends up. If that doesn't scare you into serving God, nothing will. You might as well just consider yourself kindling. <laughs> That's right. I was going to say that, but <laughs> I was trying to be nice. <laughs> In Isaiah twenty-eight twenty-one, The merciful, loving God we have does all of these things after he's given man enough time to repent. You don't get forever to repent. You get until he decides you've had enough time. You don't get to determine when that is. He does. This is how he defines it here. Isaiah twenty-eight twenty-one. For the Lord shall rise up as in um, Perezim. Uh, he shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, like the work we've just been reading about. And here's how Isaiah defines it. His strange work. <laughs> this thing is strange, buddy. <laughs> but you don't want to be part of it. And bring to pass his act, his strange act. <laughs> he said, I can't really even describe this thing, but let me just tell you, it's strange. <laughs> when he gets ready to say it's over, there's no going back. There's a line he has set up, and when you cross it, it's over. I can't determine where it is, and you can't either. But he's got it defined. Genesis 4, verse 2. Genesis 4, 2. So they get kicked out of the garden. Now they got to work. Honeymoon is over. <laughs> Welcome to the real world. And... Humanity as we know it begins. Genesis 4 verse 2. And she, talking of Eve, again bears brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain a tiller of the ground. Genesis is a book that does something, um, does a lot of things. Genesis becomes the key for the, all the Bible. You'll find the firsts of everything in Genesis. And you'll find information nuggets in Genesis that will help you understand something you'll find in Revelation or in Jude or at the end of the Bible. So keep Genesis at hand. Even when you're reading through the rest of your Bible, keep Genesis close and remember what's in it because you're going to need it to help understand the rest of it. We see a lot of contradictions in Genesis. He's going to present you life and death, cursing and blessing. Here it is right here. Cain and Abel. Good and bad. That's what we got right here. Um, these are contrasts. You find it like uh, Jacob and Esau. Um, Isaac and Ishmael. You see all that contrast. And he's making it plain to you there's a good way and there's a bad way. There's a way that seems right to a man and there's a way that God has prescribed. Choose you which one you're going to follow. In John, 1 John 3... 
Abel is a shepherd. Cain is a groundskeeper. He's a he's a farmer. Um, Cain pictures the Antichrist. Cain is a man of the world, as in a man of the earth, the ground. Abel is a shepherd, something living, breathing, something that had to shed its blood to give covering for his mom and dad. 1 John 3, verse 2. Uh, verse 12. 1 John 3, verse 12. It says, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. So Cain and Abel are twins. Of the twins, they are diametrically opposed in practice. Abel says, I'm going to keep sheep. I'm going to offer sheep. I'm going to do this thing exactly the way God's prescribed. Cain says, uh, I like the land. You know, this stuff that God cursed, I like this stuff. <laughs> and he says, I'll come up with my own system. Yeah, I know y'all been sacrificing animals over there. And that, I'm just, I'm not quite into all that blood stuff. Let me just get some grapes over here and some grapefruits and some bananas. And we'll put that up there. God says, no, I'm not taking it. I've decided what I'll take, and there's no improving my system. And that's what man does. Man decides he's going to have a more cultured system than what God's got in place. Because blood just seems so bloody. <laughs> Look at it, uh, Genesis three fifteen. Genesis three fifteen says, And I will put enmity, that is enemy, between thee and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. I'll put enmity between thee and the serpent. Uh, between, not, not the serpent. Thee and the woman. Same difference. Um, <laughs> and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So this is, um, I'm going to go into a strange area tonight. And you can, you can deal with it. You can, you can figure out if there's anything in that you want to look at or not. You may just decide that's too deep. Let's play with it another day. But there is some evidence that Cain is literally of that wicked one. As in a son of the devil. When Jesus Christ shows up talking about um, Judas Iscariot, he says he was a devil from the beginning. Um, he says of Cain, he was of that wicked one. Um, I'm not going to teach this as doctrinal truth. I'm not going to teach it as anything. I'm just going to say it's in there. Y'all figure it out. Uh, in Genesis 3.15, he says, Thy seed, the serpent's seed, and her seed, the woman's seed. Well, the woman's seed, we know, ends up being from God. Because a woman doesn't have seed. The serpent is the devil. Who's his seed? Who produces from him? Obviously, Judas Iscariot. I don't want to speculate too much on it. Genesis 3.16 He says, Unto the woman I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow... Thou shalt bring forth children, 
and thy desire shall be unto uh, to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. So not only did she get a lot of sorrow in childbirth, which the inference from that is that prior to this in the garden, had they not sinned, she could have given birth without pain. But now he's saying there's going to be pain associated with it. But he says, I'm going to greatly multiply thy conception. So you find all the greats have, tri have twins or triplets. Um, and so y'all study on that. <laughs> Genesis 4, verse 4. Genesis 4, verse 4. Let's notice something right off the bat in this verse. This is when it is time to make a sacrifice. And we have the brothers out there doing their, their chore. They're each going to offer a sacrifice. And Abel, he also brought of the firstling of his flock, of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his, offer, and to his offering. So who brought the first offering? Cain. I there's an also brought. Uh-huh. Cain. The world will be um, hypocritically spiritual first. They'll produce fake righteousness before a real Christian will. Why? Because what God gives you is the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit requires a lot of time to grow it needs to be cultivated, it needs to be nurtured, and it has a season that it comes out. However, what the devil's things are is called the works of the flesh. A work is something you can produce like that. And that's what the world does, even in the spiritual, supposed spiritual sense. They'll come out and give you great humanitarian things that they're doing, while behind the scenes... They're doing human trafficking. I mean, that's the world. That's what we find with Cain and Abel here. Cain, the wicked one, is producing first. It's just he's producing pure wickedness. Exodus 3, verse 12. He says the firstling, that's what they brought. That's what he was supposed to bring, was the firstling of his flock. And that's what God requires now, we don't get the instructions that he gave them. Now, I'm sure that, Cain, that um, Adam and Eve explained to them what they're supposed to do to bring an offering. I'm sure that was very clear to them. Um, so, obviously, Abel did it right. But we do get the instruction for this for the children of Israel. And it's the same thing they're supposed to bring. Exodus 13, 12. Exodus thirteen twelve. Thou shalt uh, set apart unto the Lord all that openeth the matrix, and every firstling that cometh of a beast which thou hast, the male shall be the Lord's. Okay, that's the first thing we saw with Cain and Abel. Go ahead. What's a matrix? Womb. Num read that the other day and I was like, why does that 
You, you understand it. There's a whole movie called that. You're right. That was confusing me. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exactly what that movie is about. The Matrix. What's the movie about? The birth of humanity. They're trying to control all of humanity by what they implant into man. So they produce, they birth their own world of humanity. That's the matrix. The matrix is what is born. Now in that movie it's wicked because it's man producing what he decides is born. Just like they're doing now, trying to manipulate the DNA. Mm -hmm. I just saw where they've got, um, they've taken DNA from three people to create a child. Okay, that's the, that's a man manipulating the matrix. Now what was that reference that you just gave? That is um, Exodus thirteen twelve. You find it again in Numbers eighteen twelve. God's particular, especially back here in the Old Testament, that he wants the first. Abel shows up with the firstling of his flock. God's special. He says, look, I don't care if you get nothing. The first one that comes out is mine. <laughs> well, you think that's stingy if you think God's on the same level as you. But when you realize who God is, you just say, yes, sir. Numbers 18, 12. All the best of the oil and the best of the wine and of the wheat and the first fruit of them which they shall offer unto me, uh, unto the Lord, them have I given to thee. Talking to the priests. Okay, so he's saying, I want the first of it and I want the best of it. <laughs> That's God. God is not there to take your leftovers or whatever you just feel like being generous about. He wants the first. He wants the best. That's the Old Testament. Now, we see it here as all physical. Well, what used to be physical, now for our age, is spiritual. You'll give him spiritually the best you got. Is the best part of your day in the morning? Okay, if it is, do your Bible study and do your prayer in the morning. If you need 12 cups of coffee before your morning even becomes a morning... <laughs> then maybe the morning ain't the best, maybe that's not the best part of your day. So don't try to offer him that one. Give him the best. You decide what's the best. Give him that one. Don't give him, don't give him after a long, hard day when you're just war slap out and ready to drop. Don't decide that's the time you're going to give him because that's not your best. Give him your best. Give him your first fruit. Anyway, I don't know how we got off on all that. Verse 17. Verse 7, Numbers 18, 17. But the firstling of a cow, or the firstling of a sheep, or the firstling of a goat. I think he said firstling enough here. Thou shalt not redeem, they are holy. They, uh, thou shalt sprinkle their blood upon the altar. Thou shalt burn their fat uh, for an offering made by fire for a sweet savor unto the Lord. There's that fire again. Now, he said those cannot be redeemed what does he mean by that? Well, in the Old Testament, you'll find instead of making an offering, 
You could redeem the offering. You could give cash instead. This is something that's never taught, so I'll go ahead and teach it. The Old Testament, you would bring the priests 10% and your firstlings, your first animals. If you decided, hey, I really need another bull, you know, to get to get my herd going this next year. I'm going to be out. We ate a bunch of cows this year. <laughs> I'm going to keep this bull. You can do that. He said, you find out the value of it. Add the fifth part there too and give it as money instead. That's redeeming your offering. He says these animals cannot be redeemed. They must be offered. That's what that verse means. Yes? On that explanation, does that, have, does that change the meaning of redeeming the time? Um, Her mind is running like a that's a good point. You can work on it. Um, yeah, work on it. See what you come up with. Yeah, I mean, I can think of a hundred things right now, but I'll be off point if I do. Proverbs chapter 3. First fruits. God wanted the first, and He didn't want you to stop at the first. He wanted all the best of all the best. <laughs> the Old Testament was a tough system. It wasn't simple. He says here, Honor the Lord with thy substance, and with the first fruits of all thine increase. You don't know, that's Proverbs 3 9. You don't know if you've got an increase yet until the harvest is over. Right? So he says, give me the first one before the rest of them come up. Then as things start to produce, give me the best of that too. <laughs> it was tough. It was tough. But that sets the precedent for us. We're supposed to be willing to give him everything. We even take it a notch higher than the Old Testament. It's all yours. I'm just waiting for you to give me Whatever you want me to have, I've got all this for you. Not that it's much, but <laughs> Hebrews nine twenty two. Hebrews nine twenty two. He says, "And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission." So he said, "I've set this up in the Old Testament, so you need blood." That's the way I set it up. I designed it that way. Everything needs to have a blood offering shed for it. That's why Jesus Christ's offering had to be blood. It'd be great if he could have come down here and just lived a sinless life because he did that. But that wasn't enough. There had to be blood. Because all of those offerings in the Old Testament required blood. So it required his death. Because he's going to fulfill and do better than you could have done in the Old Testament. That all started from Adam and Eve. Go ahead. Why does it say, and almost all things? Because not all things. It means almost. I mean, I mean, I know that, but... <laughs> okay, read it. What's it say? And all 
almost all things are by the law purchased with blood. Okay. Without shedding of blood, there's no remission. Okay. So. What happened when a woman had a child? You had to be purified. The way you would take the purification process after having a child was you would bring an offering. And that would be bloodshed. Unless you're poor. Then what do you do? Get you a couple of turtle doves. And you get you some bread, and you bring those. So almost everything required, but there were some exceptions. For instance, when a man went to battle, rather than bringing a bloody offering before battle, because who knew if in the battle you might have touched a dead body and become unclean, and then you got killed before you could get back and offer a sacrifice for it. Well, now you've died unclean. Well, God had a provision for it. He said, before battle, everybody brings me a half a shekel. And I'll count that as your purification. So, he made a provision there. That's why he says almost. Because that didn't require, that required money. Card hold, hard cold cash. <laughs> Alright, First Peter 1, 19. Here's what Abel typified, but he didn't come close. Abel's offering was as good as he could do, coming as close as he could to a perfect lamb, but here's the real one. This is the one you and I get. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. You can't get a better lamb than that. You want to follow the Old Testament law, well, we've beat it. <laughs> You can't get a better lamb than that, according to God's opinion. So, they don't even offer the lambs. But, if they were going to offer a lamb, they wouldn't be able to beat the one God has. How about this? If God raised a herd of sheep, and he says, this is the best lamb I got. Don't you think that one would count for something? It did. And that's the one we got. Look at uh, 1 Peter 1.20. Who verily was before ordained, before the foundation of the world. Who do you think got that one? Adam and Eve. But was manifest in these last times for you. That lamb came to earth, took on a body, and it's for you and I. Revelation 13, 8. Revelation 13, 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of, the li uh, in the book of life, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There's that Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, but now he's made available. That one was only for Adam and Eve. That one was only good one time. Adam and Eve. Everybody else from then on had to come up with a type with a picture and it had to be repeated every year you notice something strange you never find Adam and Eve offering an offering do you all you find is Cain and Abel 
Well, Adam and Eve's offering was good for a lifetime because it's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's the only thing that makes that make sense. That's right. Yeah. Our lamb slain, Jesus Christ slain, will do you a lifetime. You don't need another one. Amen. He says, um, Genesis 4.4. 4. Genesis 4.4. 4. If you were reincarnated in the Old Testament as an animal, you would definitely want to be a little skinny animal. <laughs> Here's why. And Abel, he also brought of the firstling of his flock of the fat thereof. Okay, you need a fat one. <laughs> fat is an interesting subject in the Bible, and we're going to see it. Genesis forty-five eighteen. Fat is a good thing in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Genesis forty-five eighteen. This is um, Joseph getting the instructions from Pharaoh on bringing his family in. And take your father and your households and come unto me, and I will give you the good of the land of Egypt, and ye shall eat the fat of the land. Fat doesn't necessarily mean obese. It means the best we can produce. And the same with the flock, the fat of the flock. That is the stocky, best, uh, the most perfect animal you have. For instance, if you're going to uh, have a, a, an ox, a cow, a, a lamb, all of those, you want them as healthy as they can be. You don't want them to look malnutritioned or, you know, like they're about to die any day. They, you want them to be healthy, um, not obese fat like they're going to, you know, be put in the, the old folks' home any day. But you want them healthy, that kind of a fat. In the old days, what was considered beauty for women is not what they consider beauty now. In um, the, the revolution period, a fat woman was considered a good woman. I don't mean obese, I just mean a healthy woman was considered beauty, not a skinny woman. Because, yeah, don't, don't make any comment, David. <laughs> you, will get, you will get killed. <laughs> I'm doing this very delicately. <laughs> the, the reason is because famine. If a famine struck, a skinny woman would not survive. You needed to be like God's talking here, healthy, healthy. You could lose a few pounds and still live. <laughs> the same way with the animal, with the herd. You're looking at the herd thinking, okay, if we don't get rain next month, that one will survive and that one will survive. I don't know about that one. So he's talking about the fat of the flock. And here's some other verses you can put down. Leviticus 3.16, Leviticus 3.17. Those are going to talk about it uh, as well. All the fat is the Lord's is what he says. That is, everything that's healthy, everything that's good, it's mine. <laughs> Just let you know, it's all mine. If you see something out there you like, it's probably mine. Right. And it says uh, in Genesis 4.4 4, that God did something special here. He had respect. 
Now that's an odd thing for God to be doing. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Imagine that, God having respect for you. I was just reading in Exodus when the children finally got to the point when they were crying out to the Lord for their burdens. And it said that God looked down and he had respect unto the people because mm-hmm. they cried out to him. Mm-hmm. And he had respect unto the people. Mm-hmm. I thought, wow, he had respect for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here he's saying that because he did the right thing, And he can see his heart, so he can see that it probably was not convenient for him. We saw that it took his brother doing it first before he got in in gear. He said, oh, yeah, Cain's over there offering already, trying to make me look bad. Matter of fact, he's got all the goodies out over there, you know, got got a real fresh produce market going on. (laughs) I better get on the ball. Where's this lamb? But it says that he did what he was supposed to do, and God did something. He had respect. That's, that's really um, humbling to think God would respect you for something you could do. But he does. He has respect. He knows that, um, that it's a chore sometimes, and it costs you, and you're beating your flesh up to open his book and read it. And he knows that you'll be reading in First Chronicles chapter 1 through 4, you know, <laughs> for, for days. And you're just going to make yourself do it. He has respect unto that. He says, they don't have to do that. I respect that. They're doing it simply because I want them to. That's it. The only reason for it. He has respect for that. Genesis 15 verse 17. Here's a wild thing in the Old Testament. And it came to pass that when the sun went down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Y'all know what that's talking about? Correct. Abraham's offering. And something passes between those pieces. And it's burning. It's a burning lamp. That word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Right. So, there's something we can do that gets his attention. Here, Abraham has done something crazy. You read that passage, it's a wild passage. But he's doing it simply because God says to do it. This is what you do. And a lot of times what we're supposed to do doesn't make any sense. We don't live by human rules. We live by Bible, period. When God says do this or do that, don't do this or don't do that, it doesn't care what I like or how I feel. Do it. You might get something special from it. He doesn't owe you that. He doesn't owe you that. You're just doing what you're told. That's the right thing to do. But there's many times he has respect and he'll do something special for you. Look at, um, we could do a bunch of verses on that, but I'll leave it. I think they're in the notes, maybe. I don't know. I didn't look at the book, but let's, um, let's see. Um, 
the way God takes an offering. God had respect to Abel, Abel's offering. He didn't simply just have it in his mind and think, hmm, I really like, I really like that. Because that would do nobody any good, would it? We wouldn't know he had respect. How do we know he had respect? He ate it. <laughs> he consumed the offering. And that's what you find all the way through the Old Testament. Is when God comes down and consumes an offering, then you know he's accepted it. Otherwise, you just still got stale meat sitting on a rock. <laughs> right? Um, look at number 16. So they didn't ever start a fire on it? So Correct. It. Correct. Well, at the altar of incense, there was a perpetual fire. It says in Numbers 16.35, Here's God taking an offering, but the respect is not for the one he's burning. (laughs) And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed 250 men that offered incense. Now, these are wicked men, so who's getting the respect here? That's number 1635. The one getting the respect here is um, Aaron. He's saying, that's the priesthood I respect. This one I don't, so I'm consuming the offering. Just like when Abel offered the offering, Abel was not consumed by the fire. The offering was consumed by the fire. The offering is the thing that is um, burnt. It's carrying the condemnation. That's why Jesus died, carried our sins to fire, to hell. So we get the benefit of freedom. Judges uh, Judges 16.21, you can put that in your notes there. It happens again. Um, The Lord put forth the end of his um, staff. That was in his hand and touched the flesh of the unleavened cakes. And there rose up a fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh of the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. That's Gideon. Gideon offers a sacrifice. He wasn't really sure that was an angel or not, but he offers him um, a sacrifice. And he knows who it is. And he knows it's accepted because God takes it by fire that he didn't start. God started the fire. In 1 Kings 18.24. This is Elijah having a, a competition. Here's um, Israel's Got Talent. Um, <laughs> 1 Kings 18.24. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And the people answered and said, it's well spoken. They understood that. Now, that's why the, the, the pagan practices use this worship of sun and fire um, as a deity. Because it's just a small perversion of something that's true. God used fire to prove who he was. And you see it all through the Old Testament with the sacrifices and the offerings that he consumes them by fire. And that's what he does. 
Uh, here's some references. 1 Kings 18.38 1 Chronicles 21.26 2 Chronicles 7.1 Proverbs 20.3 Hebrews 11.4 That's Proverbs um, 23. Well, if I said that, that's wrong. It's Psalms 20, verse 3. Good thing you asked. What was it, 2126? 1 Chronicles. Genesis 4, verse 7. Genesis 4, verse 7. Abel doesn't like what, or Cain doesn't like what happened. Abel got the respect, and Cain did all the work. <laughs> Cain looks over there and said, "Look, I was at this first, and I produced all of this stuff. I worked hard on this. What did he do? Let the animals go eat on their own? <laughs> How hard is that? Probably on his food. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right." And yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. And so it's he didn't like how that turned out, so he went over there and got in a rage and he killed his brother. So we have the first murder. Um, and it says in verse 7, God talks to him, and he says, Look, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, Sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. This is a simple thing here. He's telling you there's two types of people. There's people who are accepted by God, and people who are not accepted by God. And you determine which one you want to be. God gives you a choice. If you want to be a liar, count on it, you're not accepted. You're rejected. Here, he wouldn't be honest with God. He says something happens here. Sin lies at the door. We'll cover that in a minute. Let me get this accepted first. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. Ephesians 1, verse 6. It says, To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. There would never be anything you and I could do that would be accepted. We're unacceptable. <laughs> Period. He knows that even, He's had a whole 4,000 years of practice seeing what humanity can and cannot do. He says... I'm, I've given up. We're not going to go by rules because you've proved you won't obey those. <laughs> He's made it very simple right now. You can be accepted by someone who took your place. Accepted in the beloved. The only, only way to be accepted now. But it's real simple. Look at Proverbs twenty-one twenty-seven. Proverbs 21, verse 27.
says the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. Well, you'd think that'd be a good thing, wouldn't you? A wicked person got right long enough to sacrifice something? He said, that's an abomination. He says, furthermore, I'm going to go on and tell you even more things about how horrible it is. How much more when he bringeth it with a wicked mind? <laughs> Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying a wicked person whose mind was right, tried to get their mind right, brought a sacrifice. He said that's an abomination. Then he said it would even be more of an abomination if he brings it with a wicked mind. So the first guy didn't have a wicked mind. The second guy does have a wicked mind. He said both of them are bad and the second one's worse. That's tough. That's tough. Yes? That's right. So, yep. That's probably why. Yep. He needed, you need obedience before you do a program. You put out some big production here. I'm going to sacrifice for the Lord. I'm going to go get me something. Because then it's like you're buying him off. You've bought him off. You need to do the things he said first. Now, you got to be careful with that because the devil will get in it real quick. And he'll say, you're... Um, your doing right is a sacrifice. That's not a sacrifice. That's obedience. And he'll tell a person, okay, you've been wicked. You can't do anything right right now. Just work your way up to it. No, you don't work your way up to doing right. You do that immediately. That's not sacrifice. Sacrifice is giving up something in public. That's a public proclamation a public display that the world can see now that you may need to take your time earn a right and do something like that that's fine but as far as obedience is concerned you do that wholeheartedly 360 degree from what you were if you were wicked that's private that's between you and god you do that immediate the devil will tell you he'll try to tell you hey as wicked as you've been God's not going to take you serious if you try to live right now. Just work your way up to it, and I'll help you be godly. And he will. He'll give you plenty of fake ways to do it. Okay, the other thing we find here is this is the first time we see the word sin. If thou doest well, wilt thou not be accepted? If not, sin lieth at the door. You get a choice in life. You choose to do right... And if you choose to do wrong, you just welcomed in a new friend. Sin. Sin. Sin is that close. It's as close as a choice you make. In Revelation 20, or Revelation 3, verse 20. In Revelation 3, verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. So you got a choice. Which person are you going to go to? You're going to open the front door or you're going to open the back door? You've either got sin or Jesus Christ. Which one are you opening? It depends how you respond to him. Sin lies at the door. 
or Jesus Christ is at the door. You've got a choice. In all areas of life, everything you have a choice in, there's two people standing at the door. The old cartoons show a, yeah, a demon <laughs> on one shoulder and an angel on the other, and you, you, they're carrying on a conversation with you. Well, it's similar to that. There's two doors being knocked on, and you run to whichever one you want to communicate with. He says in Revelation, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. That is, we're going to communicate. We're going to sit down and we're going to have fellowship. The same applies to sin. If you open the door for sin, you sit down with sin and y'all have a communication. And sin multiplies. If you open the door to Jesus Christ, he doesn't want to just sit down and have a conversation with you and you forget it. He wants that to multiply. You never stay the same. You're always increasing either for sin or for God. So you decide which door you open. Okay, that's it for tonight. I feel like we went all night, but I had to finish this. Should we start off in 4, 10, 10-4. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, an hour and a half. We did go long.